0: John 17, this is it, this is the end, this is a sad day, John 17 for the 13th and final time. The upper room discourse, if I can count correctly, for the 37th and final time, and that is not even close to enough time. So John 17, concluding with verses 25 and 26 this morning, page 903. How do you conclude something as wonderful and as precious as the greatest prayer ever prayed, the prayer from the Son of God himself for us? Well, how does he himself conclude this prayer? So we think this is really neat and really masterful on Christ's part and really helpful for us as this is precisely what the church needs today as Christ concludes his perfect prayer with an emphasis on both knowing and loving. That's what we're going to talk about this morning knowing and loving. And you know the tendency that many people have to separate out uh, people into opposing identity groups. That happens in many different ways. But for our purposes, I want to focus on the tendency among Christians to separate people out into those who care about knowing versus those who care about loving. You've got the head people and you've got the heart people, you've got head knowledge. And you've got heart knowledge. You probably also know how dumb and wrong and unhelpful I think all of that is. right? This doesn't do anything except pump blood. There's just the mind, the soul, the heart, everything all the same. It's all this one thing. So what I want us to see this morning is how Christ joins together this thing that man tends to separate. And I want us to see why he ends his prayer with this and why this is the perfect end to the perfect prayer. Why does Jesus pray? More than that, why does Jesus come at all? What's the purpose? What's the goal, aim of this whole thing? Why? And the very next verse is he about to be betrayed, arrested, unjustly convicted, mocked, brutally beaten, tortured, paraded through the streets, and then strung up naked, On a tree. And then why are we here identifying ourselves with this man and two thousand years later orienting our morning and our entire lives around this man? Why? Well, he's telling us in these verses, He has come to make God known. And this God is love, and so He has come to make God's love known and felt and experienced and enjoyed by God's people. All that Christ is doing is all about this. Every word, every deed, everything is ultimately about making God known and making God's love known and making God's people know that love. And the result will be the salvation of God's people, the transformation of God's people, the, the love of God's people and the blessing and gladness and rest and joy and peace and life of God's people. That's what we all want. Christ claims that it's all found in the knowledge and love of God. And our love for God and our love for one another is rooted in and dependent on our knowledge of God. Knowledge of the loving God of life is both life and love. So who do you know and who do you love? There are no more important questions. What do you most know What do you most love? I have mentioned before Augustine's great work, City of God, one of the most important books ever written. It's a beast of a book. My copy is like five inches thick. It's massive. I've actually only read the abridged version, which I have, which is a lot shorter. Uh, But writing 1,600 years ago, Augustine argues that there are ultimately only two groups of people in the world which he kind of breaks down and refers to as two cities, the earthly city and the heavenly city, the city of man and the city of God. What is it that characterizes these two peoples? What distinguishes them from each other? Augustine writes, two cities have been formed by two loves, the earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God, the heavenly by the love of God. Even to the contempt of self. The former glories only in self, the latter glories only in the Lord. That is a huge idea. That's a big and biblical idea. Two peoples formed and defined by two loves, and it's either ultimately love of self or love of God. It is this that most characterizes the world, this love of self. This is why we increasingly hear these days a whole lot about. Self-love, self-care, self-confidence, self-sufficiency, treat yourself, know yourself, love yourself, express yourself, self, 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 self. self. Again, that's the world formed and characterized by the love of self above all else. And this is so important because it's our loves that define us. We are what we love. We increasingly become what we love And remember that in this final part of this wonderful prayer, Christ's main petition is for the unity of his people, that they may all be one. And so just as it is our love that defines us, it is our love that unites us. This is what defines us as God's people and unites us as God's people. The love of God, a love for God, and then a love for God's people. This is what makes us who are we are and separates us and distinguishes us by the grace of God from the world. And so Christ, as we're going to see again, has been very, very clear. I am praying for those whom you have given me. I am not praying for the world. And he's going to say very clearly again today, the world does not know God. And so as we conclude this precious prayer, specifically for Christ's people, this is a great time to step back, and to evaluate and to consider together that which is of first importance. Do you know and do you love this Lord who claims to be life? Three simple points to help us to structure our time. We're going to see the big idea what Christ is doing. He has come. The Son makes the Father known. And then from that, we will see two following points. We're going to see that God's people know and are known by God God's people love and are loved by God. That's our goal today, to consider those points. Let's read the text, John 17:25 through 26. Remember, we actually believe that the words that we're about to read are God's words spoken to us. So your job is to be praying for me as I read those words. My job is to read them, explain what they mean, apply them to our lives. And our job is to hear and love and live in light. Of what God's word says to us today. So, John 17, 25 through 26, please pay attention. This is what God Himself wants to say to you today. Jesus prays, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let's pray before we begin. Father, we now pray what we have just read and what we have heard Christ himself pray. We ask that by your Spirit, through your Word, that you would continue to make your name known to us. Father, teach us, uh, fill us with a knowledge of, of your person and of your work. And through that, Father, so that your love for us may be in us. Help us to know you so that we can love you. Father, help us to know you so that we can know that we are loved by you. Father, that love that we have just sung that is beyond comprehension, that is the biggest and best and greatest thing in the world. Father, if you love us like your word reveals, Father, that could and should change everything. So, Father, help us through this time to know you and to love you. Father, comfort your struggling saints this morning with your wonderful, life-sustaining, life-changing love. Father, please help me. Father, I I cannot do this. I can do nothing apart from you. I cannot preach your word apart from you. We cannot hear your word apart from you. So please now do what I cannot do, and please now do what none of us can do. Glorify your name and edify your people, Father, show us your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Point number one the Father, oh, the Son makes the Father known. As Jesus is summarizing and concluding his great prayer, it's a good time to remind ourselves how John summarizes and concludes his great book. We're starting the last part of the book next week. All right, well, why does Christ pray here? What does he desire? Why does John write? What does John desire? 2031, John tells us this is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, life is the point and purpose of this whole thing, and that life, according to John, is only found in some way in connection with this Jesus who claims to be the Christ, the Son of God. And here in chapter 17, we have now been for months listening in to this Christ in prayer as he speaks to the Father. But as we get to our text in verse 25 this morning, the petitions are done. No more petitions. Prayer is petition, asking, requesting, but prayer is more than petition. Praying is pouring out our hearts to God as we see Christ doing here. And that is going to involve more than petition. We are seeking communion with God himself. We are seeking fellowship and relationship with him. And we know that relationship is life. How much more than relationship vertically with the God of life and communication is at the very heart of communion and communication consists in much more than petition and request. And so while there are technically no requests in verses 25 and 26, we're going to see that these are sort of the foundation of Christ's requests. Here we're seeing that the heart of Christ for his people, here is the why, here are the grounds on which he prays for what he does. And remember from last week, the perfect God-man cannot pray for the wrong thing. I often pray for the wrong thing. You often pray for the wrong thing. Christ never praise for the wrong thing. He cannot desire or will the wrong thing. So what he desires and wills and prays for you is your good. We are all of us pursuing some good. We are all of us pursuing and living for some vision of what we have determined to be the good life, what we think will make us happy and satisfied. You have to know what that thing is. For you, What have you determined will make you happy and satisfied? What do you have to have? If I have this thing, fill in the blank, then I will be happy. What is that for you? What are you living for? What is your chief end? Considered it last week. Anthony just opened with it. What is the chief end of man? What is our primary purpose or goal? Why are we here? Well, we argued following the Westminster Catechism that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that comes in part from verse 24, where we saw Christ pray that we would be with him to to see his glory, his power, his his goodness, his, his beauty. Now, look at verse 25 and look at how he begins. Here's the question. Why does Jesus begin like this? Oh, righteous Father. Why righteous Father? He opens this prayer in verse 1 with Father, period, no accompanying adjective. Same in verse 5, Father, period. But then we got to verse 11, and we saw Holy Father. Why holy there? Well, it's because of what follows. The title by which Jesus prays to the Father relates to the petition that Jesus prays to the Father. So in verse 11, he asks the Holy Father to keep his people, to guard and protect them. From what? He tells us, the world. Verse 15, he prays that God would keep them from the evil one. And so I made the case that though there are technically two petitions in part two of the prayer, they are really just one petition. Look at verse 17, where he prays, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctifying his people is keeping his people from sin and evil. When Jesus says keep and Jesus says sanctify, he's saying the same thing. And that's why Jesus prays Holy Father. Remember, to sanctify is just to to make holy. The root word for holy and sanctify are the same word in Greek. So, Holy Father, make your people holy. Why then, righteous Father, in verse 25? It's a good question, actually. This is actually the only time that Jesus calls God righteous Father. And I think this is the only time in the whole of Scripture that God has called righteous Father. We know that he's righteous, that's everywhere, but this is the only time we see righteous and Father put together. And righteous is Paul's favorite word, not so much John's. John doesn't use it very often. In fact, only three times in this book. And it's helpful to be reminded that all three uses are translated differently for us. In chapter 5, verse 30, we considered this last week. The son's will is the father. He says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge and my judgment is just. That's our word. My judgment is just, same word, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So righteous, just, two different words, two different word families in English, all one word and one word family in Greek. Um, Dikaios, 724, do not judge by appearance, but judge with right, that's our word, judge with right judgment. So one word used three times in John used three different ways, or translated three different ways. Righteous, right, just, all the same thing. And these are judicial words. These are judgment words. So Christ calls on the righteous God who always acts rightly and judges justly. Deuteronomy 32.4, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. God is the God of perfect justice. And that's perfect because we find ourselves in a culture that seems to be all about justice, that's screaming for justice. Well, here it is. Here is the Son of God calling on the justice of God. Still, why? Well, I think it's because a right and righteous request will be heard and granted by the right and righteous father. Connecting back to verse 24. But also, I think, because the righteous father will recognize the rightness of what Christ says next, which is what? Well, it's Christ's declaration about the nature of the world. The world does not know you. And that's why Christ has come. John chapter one, this Jesus is the word of God who was with God and was God. All things were made through him in him was life and the life was the light of men. The true light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So what, what, a, what a person this Jesus is. What, what claims about his identity? He's God. He's the word. He is life. He's the maker of everything. Verse 10. Here it is. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. So that's the world. That's the most important thing you need to know about the nature of the world. Again, we're not talking about creation. We're talking about the world of man in rebellion against God. And there's there's nothing more evil, unjust, nothing more deserving of judgment than that. There is nothing more revealing of the true nature of the world than that. The world refuses to recognize its maker. The creature rejects its creator. And this is the evil and injustice. And all of us are still somewhat uncomfortable with this truth, but that's only because we remain somewhat unfamiliar with the holy God and his glory. We are conflicted about this truth only because we have not yet fully comprehended the holiness and glory of God. Romans 1 makes all of this very clear. The, the world's ignorance of God is a willful ignorance. Why? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 119, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse for although they knew God, stop, Paul's very clear there. Everyone knows God, everyone by nature of their creation in the image of God, by nature of living in the creation of God, that creation that, that screams his presence and power. Right? Just, just look around. Right? Look look outside. Look at all the bigness and the beauty of creation. Right? After just weeks, it feels like, of rain and wet commutes and flooded basements and all those things, all of a sudden we wake up to a day like this, you're just, oh, wonderful. God is so good. And so, God is so glorious. Look how big and beautiful and kind and gracious he must be to create something like this. Right? Creation screams God's presence. Look at the world outside you. Look at that, that law within you. And we all of us know God. But back to Romans 1.21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. That's the world. Everyone knows God, but remember our Augustine, two cities, two loves. Everyone knows God, but everyone refuses to recognize God, his Glory and sovereignty. Everyone refuses to serve him and love him and instead chooses to reject him and serve self and love self. You know, I know we struggle with this concept and we get kind of offended. What's the big deal? Can't he just get over it? Why does he care so much? But listen, if you came to me and you opened yourself up to me and you introduced yourself to me and you revealed yourself to me and told me about who you are, seeking relationship and wanting to be known, and I said, you know what? I'm not very interested, and you're kind of boring, and you're kind of awful, and I got better things to do with the football game on. So, no thanks. You'd be offended by that. That, That's rude. That's that's wrong. That's that that's sinful. That's an offense to to your person and to to your dignity. And you're not that great. I'm not that great. I am not that great i am a sinner. Uh, So when you do that to me, I'm like ah. But then I kind of get it because yeah, whatever. You know, I'm a I'm a sinner. But this is what every single one of us have done to the perfect God. Holy, powerful, good, beautiful, making us, sustaining us, providing for us, protecting us, loving us. And we say, ah, just not impressed. No, thank you. You are not good. Right? This, this is why this is the height of sin. It's because of who God is in his goodness and glory and beauty that sin as the rejection of him is such an injustice and such an affront and such an offense. The world knows God, but refuses him. The world knows God, but rejects him and hates him. And so both Paul and Christ are correct. Paul, the world knows about God. Christ, the world does not know God. It has no saving knowledge of God. It does not love God. This is the seriousness of the world's situation. For Romans 1.18, because of all of that and because of God's justice and glory, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. There is no greater evil than to know the God who made you, the God to whom you owe everything, the perfect God, and say, no thanks, I want nothing to do with you. You are not good. I don't trust you. You are worthless to me. And that's what all of us have done in our sin. That's what it means that the world does not know God. And that is why Christ has come. John 1:18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. The Son makes the Father known. And so point number two. God's people are those who know and are known by God. Back to our text. Look at verse 25. The righteous father will recognize the rightness of Christ's claim that the world does not know him. Keep reading. But I know you, and these know that you have sent me. Stop. So the son makes the father known because the son knows the father, which is much bigger and better news than we think. Note in that verse, look closely, note that there are three knowings in that verse. There are three states of knowledge. We are considering the eternally important and fundamental distinction in mankind. City of man, city of God. Augustine has categorized them in terms of their love. Look at what Jesus does. Same fundamental distinction categorized in terms of their knowledge. The world does not know God. These, who are the these? The the church. Verse 20, those who believe in Christ through the word of the disciples. Verse 9, those for whom Christ prays, those given to him by God and his grace. Verse 7 and 8, twice, those who know. The world does not know, the church knows. This is it. This is the difference. This is the distinction. And what is it that stands Between these two, what is the dividing line? It's the Christ. They don't know. These know. In the middle, I know you. And that's so big because God is so big. Yes, the fundamental distinction in mankind is between those who know and do not know. But the fundamental distinction in the whole of reality is what is often referred to as the creator-creature distinction. There is God. And then there's everything else. He is set apart. He is different. He is distinct. He is other, not like us. So Peter prayed about, and our statement of faith talks about the incomprehensibility of God. Chapter 2, paragraph 1 of our statement of faith. You should just you should spend so much time in this paragraph. Again, I've argued that this is one of the greatest paragraphs ever penned. Not under the influence of, not under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Here's what our confession says about this God He is self existent and infinite in being and perfection. His essence cannot be understood by anyone but Him. He is a perfectly pure spirit. He is invisible and has no body, parts, or passions. He alone has immortality, dwelling in light that no one can approach. He is unchangeable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, in every way, infinite, absolutely holy, perfectly wise, wholly free, completely absolute. That's not even the whole thing. What a big and brilliant and beautiful paragraph. And it's because we have such a big and brilliant and beautiful God. He is so good and he is so other that that, that his essence, his, his godness, cannot be comprehended by us incomprehensible, in every way infinite. The finite cannot comprehend the infinite. Psalm 145, verse 3, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. Psalm 147, verse 5, Great is our God, and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Isaiah 40, 28, The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Romans 11:33. 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord. No man is the answer. No man that is but Christ the God-man, the one who says, I know him, that God, the incomprehensible God, Christ comes and says, I have come to make the unknowable God known. And why is this so important? Because of verse 3. Look at it. I gave a whole sermon on this. So go back and listen. 17 verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Yes, that's a huge claim. We've already considered John's purpose statement and the claim that in some way to believe in Christ is to have life. Well, here we see the claim that knowing God is life. Why? It's because of who he is. He is God. He is creator. He is life. He is the source of life. He is the sum of life. He is the goal of life. He is a person the person, and we were created to find our life in him in relationship with the one who is life himself and the source of all life itself. And so since we were all of us created by God, we are all of us necessarily related to God. You can't, you can't get away from that. The question is, what is and will be the nature of that relationship? Will it be a suppressed knowledge about God a refusal to honor and give thanks to him? A refusal to love him? Or will it be a saving knowledge of God? A glad and humble submission to him. A trust in him. A love for him. We, life is everything. We get that, right? Like, like Life contains and consumes. Uh, it, everything is summed up in, in, in life. It's the point of everything. True life, abundant life, eternal life is found only in knowing God through the Christ, the Son of God who makes him known. And so that is the question, do you know God? J.I. Packer for the 30th time, I don't know. What were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. What is the best thing in life? bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else, knowledge of God. Do we believe that? Do we believe that this is what we're made for and this is the aim we should set ourselves in life? I like making goals. I like having goals. I'm pursuing various things. You are pursuing various things in your life. You have goals of things you want to accomplish and achieve. I was just thinking, I'm like I'm getting old, so 40s coming up next year. I was starting to think, for some reason, I was thinking about birthdays. Well, we had a big birthday party, so lots of birthdays. I was thinking about my upcoming 40th, and I was thinking, what do I want to do for 40? I have a couple of dumb goals. I want to do 40 pull-ups when I'm 40, like in a row. So that'd be kind of cool. And then I have some spiritual goals and some other things, of course. I want to have hips that work and be able to run again. Various things, but like, do we make any goals about this? Like, is this what we're pursuing? It's good to pursue earthly goals, rightly understood. It's good to exercise and to improve our minds and, and to be fit and whatever. Some of these things are fine and good in their proper place, but do we ever have these goals and purposes and aim is my primary purpose and desire for myself and for my children and for this church that we would know God and that we are aiming ourselves in that direction and setting goals uh, to accomplish and achieve that pursuit, which is the pursuit, which, which is Life. Do you believe that life is found in Him? Do you believe that knowledge of God is better than anything else? And that you will find joy and delight and life in that, in Him? Do you know God? Do you know Him as righteous Father? Yeah, that's the only time God has called that. That's the only time we see those two descriptors combined together, and they're perfect here. Do you know Him as righteous? And do you know him as Father? Do you know him as creator, Lord, lawgiver, and judge, the God of perfect, absolute justice? When we see him as such, we cannot then help come down and see ourselves in light of that and see and know ourselves as sinners, as falling woefully short of his glory. I can't even live up to my own standards for myself. What about God's perfect standard Of righteousness. We're confronted with his righteousness. We are at the same time confronted with our sinfulness. Deserving of the judgment that this chief sin of hating and rejecting God um, deserves. The, the, The wages of sin is death. To reject the God of life is death. Listen, if you are here this morning and you do not know Christ, then you need to know that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You need to know that you will stand before the righteous God who made you. That internal sense that we all have of right or wrong, that guilt that we all carry is evidence and proof that there is a law and a lawgiver and we will stand before him. And this is the one to whom you owe everything and his standard is perfection and you will have to give an answer to him for all that you have done uh, to all of your sin and evil. God is righteous and all wrongs will be made right. That's what justice demands how wonderful then is that second title righteous father 14 6 i am the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me so god the father is known only uh, through god the son Uh, god the father is come to and approached only through god the son 1015, just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. But what does the son knowing the father have to do with the son laying down his life for his people? Because the son knows the father as righteous. The son knows that the wages of sin is death. The son knows that justice demands that sin be dealt with. And the son knows that that's the very thing that he is coming to do for us in our place. And this is the gospel. This is the good news that is the power of God for salvation. It is that God is both righteous and Father, and as such, He has Himself provided a way for justice to be done and mercy to be poured out on His people. And that way, the only way, is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, who comes to live and die and rise again in our place because of our sin, so that we may be forgiven and live. It is only in Christ that we know God as righteous father. Do you know him as this? If you'd allow me a brief, not brief, if you'd allow me to quote Spurgeon at length for a second, I can't help it. It's just, it's it's so good. It's Spurgeon and it's put the way that only Spurgeon could put it. But here's what he writes about this title. And I found this, I spent a lot of time with this and found it very helpful. So I tried to delete it this morning and I couldn't do it. So here it is. Spurgeon says, it is but little that I know. And the more that I know, the more that I get older, the more that I realize that fact. It is but little that I know. But I feel that I would cheerfully part with all of it so long as I may be allowed to retain the knowledge contained in these two words, righteous father. This is my life, my light, my love, my delight, my heaven if all the productions of wit and wisdom throughout all past ages could be as effectually consumed as the Alexandrian library when it was burned to ashes, if man did but retain the knowledge of these two words, righteous father, we might be content to see the whole rest of it pass away in smoke. To know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent is the climax, the essence, the sum total of wisdom, It is comforting to the last degree for a man to know that God is his father is delightful beyond measure to feel that God forgives him as the father forgave the prodigal that he has received him into his heart and home as the father did his once lost boy is unspeakably delightful. But when we further learn that all this is done without the violation of justice, that all this deed of grace is done righteously and so done that even justice demands it should be done, then we are full of wondering love. Are you full of wondering love? Eternal life is knowing God. God's people know God. And knowing this, Knowing this God as righteous father and knowing what Christ had to do for us to be with the righteous father. We are full of wondering love. Point number three. And so God's people love and are loved by God. Look at verse 26. Don't miss this. Don't miss how explicitly Christ connects knowing and loving. They cannot be divorced. He says, I made known... To them your name again that's our first point he makes god's name known and we know that name is just shorthand for for all that god is it's his existence his attributes his works his words everything christ is making the fullness of god known keep going not only has jesus made his name known in his coming living loving and teaching um, but he goes on and i will continue to make it known. stop that, that could refer to his work that begins in the very next verse that could refer to his suffering and dying. That is the clearest revelation of God's name. That is where the righteous father is revealed. And uh, as that is where we see both his perfect justice and perfect mercy perfectly displayed. But I think most likely that Jesus is referring here to the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. Which remember is one of, if not the main point Of this whole upper room discourse. Let not your hearts be troubled. I'm leaving. How could you not be troubled? Holy Spirit. Another person. 14.16. Another helper. The spirit of truth. He dwells with you. And he will be in you. 14.26. This helper will teach you all things. And bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. 16.13. He will guide you into all the truth. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit's work is to glorify the Son. How? By teaching, by continuing to make God known. As he inspired the disciples to record and write down what they witnessed, he continues to illuminate our understanding of what they wrote down and witnessed. This then that we are doing right now is a fulfillment of the prayer. That Christ prays as we seek here knowledge of God's living and active word. As we are prayerfully dependent on the spirit of truth to to open our eyes. To give us minds of understanding of these great truths uh, about this great person and work that are the great revelation of God and his great love. That's what this whole thing is about. Back to verse 26. I have made it known. I will continue to make it known through the work of the spirit that Purpose statement, teaching, revelation, knowledge, that the love with which you, Father, have loved me may be in them and I in them. The end. And What an end that is. And this is the end not only as the conclusion to the prayer, but as we begin, this is the end as the the purpose or the goal. Love, this is what you were made for. This is how you glorify God and enjoy him forever. You know him and love him. And you cannot love him without knowing him, knowing about him and his love. And this is what Jesus has been emphasizing throughout this whole precious section of scripture. Let me just just show it to you. Let me try to drill this into your brain as we conclude. Because this is what this whole thing is about. This is how it all begins. Remember back in 13 verse 1. When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Then he he washes their feet. he's, He's acting out. He's demonstrating to them what he's about to do as the ultimate act of love on the cross to cleanse them from their sins. And then he applies 13, 34, and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so also are you to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. 14.15, he helpfully explains what true love is and does. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Yeah, again, we, we so oppose law and love that that's hard for us to grasp, but why would we not keep his commandments if this is who he is? Right? Love recognizes the goodness and beauty of the Lord. Love recognizes that Christ's will is our good and that his commandments are not burdensome. And because we love him, we listen to him. He keeps saying that in verse 21, verse 23. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Catch this, and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Home are a few words better than home. Home with the blessed God himself. There's more love in verses 24 and 31. Chapter 15, look at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Father perfectly loves the Son. Jesus says, I've loved you like that. So abide in my love. Rest, live in that love. We're talking about knowing and loving cannot be separated. Verse 10, 15, verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Verse 12, this is my commandment again, that you love one another as I have loved you. 1513, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And that's that's love. It's the self-sacrificial seeking of the good of the other. It is both affection and action. It is what Christ has perfectly done for us. As he sets his affection on us, as he knows that sin and death are bad, he then seeks our good by acting on our behalf, acting as our substitute, taking our place, our sin, our death, so that the justice of God is vindicated and the love and mercy of God can be poured out on us, though we deserved none of it. That's love. That's God. That's the Father. Sixteen twenty-seven. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Church, the Father himself loves you. You need to memorize that verse. You cannot rehearse that truth to yourself enough. Now listen, if that's the case, again, speaking carefully, not really, but if that's the case, I don't care what else is happening. I don't care how bad, how disappointing, how discouraging, how perplexing, how painful. If all of this is true, all of that, all of it is light light and momentary. And listen, I know that some of that I know is really big and really hard, and so we in no way want to minimize that. We in no way want to minimize the difficulty of suffering and troubles of life. Listen, life in this world is hard, and it's difficult, and it's confusing, and it's painful. And I think life as a Christian in this world, I've made the case, is even harder um, and more difficult and more confusing and often more painful. Again, all that's huge. I get that. That's true, but this is eternal. And so that's why Paul calls everything else light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory that God is preparing for us, Um, that he's preparing for us through all of those hard things because he loves us. And so again, we don't set those things aside or ignore them or act like they're not a big deal. No, they are a big deal, but we take that bigness and then we read them in light of the infinite, eternal bigness of God's love for us. And then those things are put in their eternal perspective. And we trust that the loving Heavenly Father from whom all things come can even take those things and work glorious and big and eternal good for us through them. So church, the love of the Heavenly Father should be everything to us because it is a perfect love. 17.23, Jesus wants the world to know that God loves us even as he loves his son, the beloved son with whom the father is well pleased, the perfect son that the father has loved perfectly and eternally. Jesus says that the father loves us as he loves him. And that's how he concludes here in verse 26, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Christ's closing words are union with Christ's words. That mysterious but real and spiritual and intimate union we have with him, he in us and we in him. Colossians 1.27 Christ in you, the hope of glory. Do you know this? do you love this God of love? This is what it means to be a child of God. This is how you think of yourself. It's the identity out of which you live. Anthony read it at the beginning. It struck me, uh, 149.4. the Lord takes pleasure in his people. Ah, that's, that's hard for me to believe sometimes. I'm being completely honest. He, perfect, all-knowing, takes pleasure in you, in me, in Christ. To be a child of God is to know this and to love this. And to be clear, in case the wording of my points is confusing, I went with we know and are known by God. We love and are loved by God. But we know that that's not the order of operations there. We know that it is not our knowing or our loving that comes first. We saw it uh, Thursday night. God always initiates. Ours is only to respond. God gives. Ours is to receive. And so with that in mind, I'm going to close you with 1 John. I want to read you a few things from 1 John, and then I will be done. But if you want to turn to 1 John, this is where we're going to end. Because this is the the first letter of the same John who's writing this gospel, who became referred to as the, the apostle of love, the apostle who heard this prayer and who has to be thinking of this prayer as he pens his epistle of love. Let me start you in 1 John 3 verse 1. Again, I'm just trying to overwhelm you with God's love and how central of a theme this is in God's word. First John 3, 1, John writes, See what kind of love the Father has given to us. What kind of love? That we should be called children of God. And so we are. So the Father gives the love. It's all grace. The love makes us his children. We were not his children. Love makes us his children. Look at 3.16. What is love? How do we know it? 3.16, by this we know love. That he, Christ, laid down his life for us. So God's love through Christ is a sacrificing, serving, saving love. Look at chapter 4, verse 10. And this makes the order clear. This is very important. 4, verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, loved ones, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And church, we have to stop, but we could spend our whole lives learning of this love of God. We will spend our whole lives learning of and loving this love of God. And so why not start now? That's your application. Nothing profound, but it's it's learn much of the love of God. Think much of the love of God. Eternal life is knowing God. What do you need to do to get this fixed in your mind? God's people will be students. That's what it means to, to be a disciple. We will be students of love, of God's love. God's people love to learn about God and love to learn about God's love. Psalm 25, 4, make known to me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me for you, are the God of my salvation. What can you do to learn more and live more in light of the love of God? This is what most characterizes God's people, children of God, by the grace of God, knowing God and loving God because Christ is in them because Christ is in, them, we have the very life of God in us. Now, how can you begin to take that and apply that to all the troubles and trials that are just waiting for you once you walk out those doors? Right? You know you're walking right back into something. How can you take this and apply it to that? Think, meditate, remember who you are in Christ. The eternally blessed privilege and future you have guaranteed for you entirely by Christ. Now, what would it look like to deal with that disappointing situation, that difficult circumstance, that difficult person in light of the knowledge and love of God? I know God. I love God. I am known by God. I am loved by God, indwelt by God Himself. Christ is in me. Now, how would I handle this? if all that is true. can I really do that? all my problems are rooted when I forget these things. When I'm confronted with something, I compartmentalize and I forget all of that and I face this thing without any thought to this thing and everything falls apart, right? And I'm miserable and I'm, I'm sad and frustrated, right? Because I've compartmentalized. How do I now break that wall down and take this, which is of most importance, and now apply it to all of those things? First, the knowledge of God And the love of God can change everything if we would just together learn how to use them. If we would just learn together how to encourage one another with these truths and to speak these words to one another. Know God and love God. There is no divorcing of knowing and loving in God's economy. And it is only through knowing him that we will love him and that we will grow in our love for him. And then in our love for one another. And it's there that we will find unity and so glorify God. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. That's Christ's will for all of us. That's Christ's will for his church. And so he prays for us. You are prayed for by the son of God himself. Delight in that truth. Rest in that truth and know and love the righteous father. Let me close you with a word of prayer. Father, please do now for us what we cannot do. Father, my experience, your experience of these things so often falls uh, so short of, of what we have so clearly revealed to us, of the, the goodness of knowing you, of the goodness of being loved by you. Father, of the experience of that love being poured out into our hearts. So Father, we simply ask that you would help us, that you would have mercy upon us, Father, that you would increasingly um, fill our thoughts and our minds, our affections. Father, rule our wills with the truth of your great love for us in Jesus Christ. Father, whatever it is that we are facing this week, whatever it is that is discouraging us, whatever anxieties or fears we are facing, frustrations or disappointments or doubts, Father, please help apply this truth to those situations. Father, help us to increasingly be a people who are identified and live out of the identity of children of God, of knowing you and loving you because we are so known and loved by you. Father, we can't do that, but you can by your spirit through your Word. So, Father, please, I ask that you would work on our hearts and minds now in Jesus' name. Amen.